The reading for today comes from Revelation 7, 9 through 8, 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, and who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Brennan. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all this morning. If you're new, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are spending 12 weeks going through the book of Revelation. Today is week four, and uh, I don't know if anybody noticed how odd... The atmosphere in the sky was this morning with no explanation. Anyway, I think we're glad we're doing Revelation. I'm not one of those guys, okay? So anyway, uh, quick announcement. Um, This week, uh, Caleb and I, who was just up here, um, he uh, had me do a video. It's only about 24 minutes long, but I think it might be helpful. It's a video of certain issues from the book of Revelation that seem to get brought up because of the book of Revelation, but that we may not necessarily have time to be able to address on Sunday morning. And so we decided to do a little video uh, as a resource for you, and it should be on our website uh, sometime tomorrow. Uh, If you're interested in looking at that, it'll be a, a link to our YouTube channel, but I believe that you can only get to the link through our website. So um, anyway, if you're interested in that, it'll, we'll talk, you know, what's the rapture, um, what, what is eschatology, and what are the different millennial views are just some of the things that we talk about on that. So, 12 weeks in Revelation, uh, little review, then a little introduction to today's passage. We're looking at uh, chapters uh, 6, 7, and then the first verse of 8 today. And it's the seven seals that are going to be opened. So uh, chapter one was John encounters Jesus and is sort of given some instruction as to what he's going to do. In chapters two and three, John writes the seven letters to the seven churches that uh, Jesus dictates to him. And then last week, uh, Tyler James took us through chapters four and five, where John is invited by Jesus into heaven for the purpose of, uh, of understanding what is going to happen 
so that he can explain what these things that are going to happen and to be able to communicate his vision of God's glory to us. And two of the things that we learned last week are that God is presented in his exalted holiness, sitting victoriously and authoritatively above all evil and above all resistance to him. And secondly, Jesus is the perfect, worthy lamb who has accomplished all the purposes of God. And that would be victory over Satan, sin, and death through the cross and the resurrection, which makes Jesus the only one who is worthy to open this scroll to unseal the seven seals that we're going to be looking at today. And let's be clear, the one thing to know about this time to come in Revelation, we're talking about the next 11 chapters, 6 through 16, in addition to the final salvation of those who have been faithful to Jesus, there will also be a magnificent harvest of new believers. This is one of the upsides to all of this challenging judgment that we're going to be facing the next several weeks. It's not just that the new Jerusalem will eventually be ushered in, that's chapters 21 and 22, week 12 of this series, the last week, but there will also be many new believers even as many others continue to resist the gospel. And while that is true that there will be many new believers, it is also true that there is no such thing as a harvest that only reaps. That only reaps. When you, when you reap the fruit, you are also purging that which is not fruit, that which is not uh, worthy of being, uh, being reaped. And so every harvest involves both purging and reaping. It involves both salvation, that would be the wheat, in the uh, Gospels, and it involves judgment. That would be the terrors in the Gospel. So here is what one author attempts to remind us of. The point of the book of Revelation is to shake us out of our comfort slumber. I love that term, our comfort slumber, this this feeling of, of invulnerability, this feeling of invincibility, this feeling that everything's going along fine, and there may be a few hiccups, but it's going to be just fine. It, the point of Revelation is to shake us out of that comfort slumber in order to prepare us for the fall of Babylon. And the fall of Babylon will affect everybody. Everybody. We need to understand that because people, oh, it's just a city that's going to fall. It's Babylon, and, and it's an ancient city. It's not even a real city today. Oh, oh, it's symbolism. Okay, well, what city is Babylon symbolizing today? Is it, is it Las Vegas? Is it San Francisco? Is it Paris? And not Paris, France, but Paris, Texas, because that's a really nasty place. Okay, what is it? It's not, even a, it's not even a current, a contemporary city. Babylon symbolizes in the book of Revelation all of the worldly systems in which people place their hope, all of them. Any worldly system, any system that's been devised by fallen, sinful people to address the problems that we think need solving and the promises that they're always going to be addressed in a way that will solve all of our problems, answer all of our questions, eliminate all of our suffering, and we are finally going to have utopia. That's the idea. And so you have political systems. And you have philosophical systems, and you have cultural systems, and you have economic systems. It's the idea that 
If I just can game the stock market correctly, I will, I will eliminate any chance of economic insufficiency. If I, can just, if I can just figure out these gender and sex identity politics, then, then my life will be made complete. If I, if I can just understand existential philosophy, that will bring about this, this deeper understanding of, of the cosmos and I'll, and I'll have purpose in my life. Or it's as simple as aligning yourself with an elephant or a donkey, if you get my drift, okay? And now, today's assignment. We look at the seven seals that John was worried no one would be able to open, no one would be worthy to open, but then the lamb steps up, and he is worthy. He can do it. And what is the significance of the seven seals? It's a good question. Lots of good questions this morning. Understand, first of all, judgment precedes salvation. Judgment precedes the life of paradise that we find in the new Jerusalem. And the language around the unsealing of the seven seals is rooted in several Old Testament books, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Amos, Joel, Dan, and Hosea, along with language from three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the New Testament. And there are many allusions to these books as you read through these verses. And so the opening of these seals are a necessary precursor to the arrival of the, new judgment, uh, of the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem does come in chapters 21 and 22, but these seals are important, as are the seven trumpets and the seven bowls containing the seven different plagues. And so that's... That is a question that I want to deal with a little bit this morning and then we'll deal with on, in an ongoing basis just to remind you. But we have actually, this is the first of three rounds of seven different judgments. This is the seven seals today. Next week will be the seven trumpets will be blown, uh, heralding judgments. And then we'll have an interlude of two or three weeks and then we will finally get to the last of the round of seven, and that's the seven bowls holding the seven plagues. And scholars have debated for centuries about what is the meaning of three different sets of seven judgments. And I would say that a majority of the scholars who have studied this way longer than I have, they land on the idea that it's a rhetorical device where it's the same seven judgments, but they are being written about and understood from seven different, I'm sorry, from three different perspectives. And each one of these three different perspectives, because you see different things at different angles, is going to add various layers and details that weren't present before, or maybe they might even change some of the details or layers. It's the same as if you have three people who witness a car accident, you're going to get three different versions of that car accident, but it's the same car accident. And I tend, to, I tend to agree with that understanding and that interpretation, but I will tell you, there are many scholars who also say, no, the differences in the layers between the three sets of these seven judgments are significant enough to, 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 be, to think that they might be in all 21 different judgments that have different ramifications. And, and I'll tell you, there's a pretty good argument for that position as well. And so, I'm sorry, I don't really land... I, I would say it's probably the first one, but I'm, I, I am certainly not going to close my hand on that. So be thinking about that during these next several weeks as we go through these three sets of seven. It's important to understand that it might be per, per, what they call perspectival. 
Now, the format of opening just the seven seals today. The first four seals release different colored horses representing four different judgments. And then seals five and six at the end of chapter six sort of up the judgment ante. The judgments get progressively worse. And then there's an entire chapter of an interlude before the seventh seal is unsealed. And we get the seventh seal being unsealed in the first verse of chapter eight. And finally, before we start, here's a fun fact. Often, ancient Jewish wills were testified to by seven witnesses, and the will scroll was sealed with seven seals. And so some people have called this the last will and testament of Jesus, although Jesus is not going anywhere. And so let's get started with verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6, the first four judgments. Now I watched when the Lamb opened the first one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And one came, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from, earth, from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and a gallon of gas for ten dollars. I added that, sorry. And do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with every sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and with wild beasts of the earth." As I said, the first four seals each release a different colored horse with symbolizing a different judgment. The white horse in verses 1 and 2 represents a military dispatch, which is the army of God. And And the judgment is against all evil that arises against the will of God. It is God waging war on evil, which I would hope would be cause for celebration. Because evil's bad. And God's army never loses. And then there's the red horse, verses 3 and 4, represents a a more specific judgment and war. It's the judgment and war against the sin and evil that causes families and entire nations to turn on each other. So like civil wars and wars over wills and family businesses and romantic betrayals. You know, as long as I'm in the neighborhood, there are a lot of people talking about how the United States is sliding toward a new civil war. And I would suggest that God might have something to say about that. And then there's the black horse, verses 5 and 6. Could be described as judgment against corruption in the marketplace, in the economy, and in governments. If you're new to this, let me just tell you that there is corruption in the marketplace, in the economy, in all economic systems, no matter what it is, and in the government, in politics. That might shock you, but yeah, Tim is blown away right now. He's calling people on his phone right now. He's so stunned with that revelation, okay? Well, this is judgment against all of that. You look at the language in verses um, 5 and 6, and, and the problem is that business, the problem is when business and government practices 
result in runaway inflation, severe inventory and shortage, uh, supply shortages, and transportation and supply line difficulties. Is anyone getting the least bit uncomfortable right now? I, I'm telling you, I'm not one of those guys, but... And then there's the pale horse. And somebody came up after the first service and wanted to know what Clint Eastwood had to do with this. And, you know, pale rider. So obviously it was a very old guy. So anyway, um, the death horse with Hades, hell, hell following. This is judgment of sin because sin kills. And without Jesus, we will end up eternally separated from God. You could sum up today's message with three words. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Uh, Ten days ago, eleven days ago at our, our preaching collective, when we were, all, we were all together talking about this passage, we got into this conversation um, that ended like this. And here's a slide. Um, each of these uh, three sets of seven judgments judge varying evils, and they shift a little bit, but they're rooted pretty much in the same thing. But what we saw here were these four different evils that are being judged. And, and we started talking about how, you know, economic evil and biological evil. So biological evil would be like things like viruses or chemical warfare. So it could be either of those and encompassing many of those things. And then, of course, economic evil, there's just this constant um, fear and chatter uh, everywhere about, ooh, what's going to happen there and what's going to happen? When's the stock market going to crash? And when, are your, when, is, when is the government going to take your 401ks and just say, we need it for debt reduction? When, when is all of this going to happen? And, and we talked about how leaders, especially, of course, political leaders, but leaders of all stripes will use uh, economic fear and biological fear in order to cow you into letting them have authority and power. And that goes into the, the political evil. That's political evil. So they're using the economic evil and the biological evil or the threat of it to scare us so that they can have power. They can have authority and that becomes the political evil. And all, because we look, at the, we look at them and we go, there's our salvation. Our salvation is if we just get our guy elected, our gal elected, then everything's going to be, they're going to change everything. They're going to fulfill every promise that they made on the campaign trail. Okay? And, and, and then you look at those three evils and you realize that underlying those three evils, all of them is cosmic evil. It's the battle between the forces of light and the forces of dark. Okay, you don't like me describing it that way? It's the battle between God and Satan. It's the battle between God and his army, his host, his heavenly host, and against Satan and his demons. That's what's causing all of it. And the only way that we are victorious over the, the battle, the evil that's causing it all, is we need Jesus. That's where it is. A couple things about that. First of all, as we look uh, ahead a little bit into chapters uh, 12 and 13 in a few weeks, we see dragons and beasts. I'm telling you, I know some of you are going to go, oh, that's silly. We see dragons and beasts. They're symbolic, okay? We also have today elephants and donkeys. We've just changed our symbolism. Okay? We're putting our faith in the wrong things. Do we need government? Yes. Do we need elections? Yes. Do we need politicians? 
Yes, we need all of those things. The problem is, is when we start putting our faith in them, they can't deliver the way they say they can, and they can't deliver the way we want them to. We're all looking for some sort of utopia, and it ain't going to happen with them. It's not going to happen with an economic system. It's not going to happen if the CDC eradicates every disease. It's not going to happen there. The place where we have redemption and salvation is in Jesus, because he's the one who defeated Satan, sin, and death at the cross. It reminds me a little bit of something C.S. Lewis once wrote. He said, if you think of this world as a five-star hotel, it's really not that great. Service could be better. It's expensive. There are a lot of inconveniences. But if you think of this world as a prison, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, Tom used to say, and I'm sure that he's, he's not the only one who's ever said it, but our founding pastor used to say all the time, if you're a Christian... This world is the closest you'll ever get to hell. And if you're not a Christian, this world is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. Perspective. Okay? Uh, Spurgeon described it this way. Is the world a playground or a battlefield? It's both. But ultimately, there's going to be this tremendous battle at Armageddon, which will then bring what you might describe as a heavenly playground, the the New Jerusalem. Um, By the way, as long as I'm in the neighborhood... In the year 2006, I was getting ready to teach through uh, Revelation, and I got to Revelation 6, and I was thinking about this imagery of the four horses. And, and the way my stupid mind works, I immediately thought, well, what if Jesus were talking about this and, and demonstrating this and symbolizing this in the 21st century? Would he have used horses, or would he have maybe used Harleys? Would it be the four Harleys of the, of the apocalypse? And so at the time, um, I, I still am, but I, I was involved in, in prison ministry, and there were two guys uh, down in Florence serving long terms, and they were exceptionally talented artists. And so I thought, and, and one of them was really good at painting vintage motorcycles, and the other one is really good at, at painting horses and Western motifs. And so I wrote them, and I said, would you mind doing these paintings? Would you do the four Harleys of the apocalypse, and would you do the four... Horses of the Apocalypse. So the four Harleys of the Apocalypse is right here. Charlie Robeson did this one. Uh, He's out now. He served 17 years, and he attends Redemption Tempe right now. Um, But Charlie is so committed to Scripture and and does not want to betray Scripture in any way, shape, or form that the way he painted this, if you come up and get a close look, he's got four horses shadowed in the background here. And then this, this light post has a cross in it. I mean, it's, uh, and the detail on this thing, it's absolutely amazing. And then a guy named Joe Camara painted this one for us. Joe was in for 23 years. Uh, he got out a couple of years ago. He attends Redemption Arcadia and might even be in this service right now. Anyway, <laughs> um, and he painted the horses of the apocalypse. And it is absolutely uh, beautiful. The detail is stunning. If you get a chance afterwards, you can come up and, and uh, look at these paintings. Anyway, um, that's why we have those. And by the way, they, uh, the rest of the time, they, all, they always hang in our office. So I'm reminded of these paintings every time I go into uh, the office. All right, onward, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the sound, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told me to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So, fifth seal, I think, is pretty easy to discern. It is the judgment against those who persecuted Christians. It's interesting, the word translated there, witness, is the Greek word martyr. Martyr. Are you getting this? Christians who have been and who will be martyred for their faith will eventually have the last word. They will have vindication. That's a big part of what's going on in the book of Revelation. And actually, it's God who's going to have the last word. And he will vindicate the martyrs. And notice that they are clothed in white robes. That symbolizes the redemption of, the, of Jesus that brings righteousness and holiness. Again, lots of symbolism in Revelation. And finally, this in verse 9. Lord, when are you going to hurry up with this judgment? The martyrs, those who had been persecuted, oppressed, killed, executed for their faith. They're standing up to God as they praise him and they're saying, how long do we have to wait for our vindication? When are you going to do this? Have you ever noticed that people who have been treated unjustly have no problem asking for swift justice and swift vindication? There's a European scholar. He's well known. His name is Miroslav Wolf. And he writes this. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, and if God did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Powerful stuff. Here comes the sixth seal, 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there, were, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it's shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Again, Tons of Old Testament allusions here. The sixth seal is much debated as to what the judgment is, but it seems that most have landed on this. It is the judgment on the corruption that sin inflicts on God's good creation. If you remember Romans chapter 8, the creation groans and cries out for redemption. Even the creation does this. And, and, and here's the thing, and you see it there. The opening of the sixth seal... And the seeming creation chaos that ensues, it frightens people. It frightens all people, from lofty to not-so-lofty people, from kings to paupers. And it frightens people with good reason. God is advancing, and it's a done deal. 
This is that moment when all the scoffers and all the mockers and all the sophisticated unbelievers look and realize that maybe they should not have been so arrogant and flippant about God. Judgment day is coming. And so six of the seven seals are open, but there's an interlude before we get to the seventh seal, and that's chapter 7. This interlude describes a bit about God's protection for his people during the opening of these first six seals. The sixth seal, the one we just discussed, signaled the end of history in the coming of God and the Lamb. And we would think that the seventh seal would be opened uh, almost immediately and the kingdom revealed. Instead, we have two visions of God's people in the last days. The first vision is verses 1 through 8. And it relates to the period of time prior to the judgments being opened in chapter 6. And the second, verses 9 through 17, reveals the glory that follows them. And according to the Revelation scholar George Beasley Murray, the purpose of chapter 7 is to assure the reader, that would be us, that we have no reason to dread the end times judgments because we are in Christ and therefore God will protect and provide for us. And so verses 1 through, seven of chapter, 1 through 8 of chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gab. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. From the tribe of Manasseh. From the tribe of Simeon. The tribe of Levi. The tribe of Issachar. The tribe of Zebulun. The tribe of Joseph. And the tribe of Benjamin. 12,000 were sealed. Notice the four angels in verse 1 holding back the winds. They are the antithesis of the four judging horsemen that we see in chapter 6. The winds described here represent the whole manifestation of the judgment symbolized by the seals. And the angels are protecting God's people from the real and necessary judgment of whatever is against God. And the enumeration of the 144,000 and the tribes in verses 4 through 8 serves to emphasize not a limitation on those who are saved to 144,000. It's not a limitation but rather the completeness of the number of God's people, however many it is, that he has saved and is in the process of saving. Notice how the description of the number of God's people changes in the next four verses. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Great multitudes, no one could count. We have to touch on this. Uh, part of the Jehovah's Witness false teaching is that God's provision and salvation is only enough for 144,000. 
And so to be saved, you must also work hard to make the cut. You have to be in the top 144,000. I don't know how you'd ever know that. I don't know how you'd ever be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant, I've, I've made the cut. Okay? What you need to know, though, is that this is a false gospel. Jesus plus anything, including hard work to impress God, is not the true gospel, and it puts a limit on grace, and grace has no limit, otherwise it's not grace. They focus on the 144,000, which is merely a symbolic number, and forget that in verse 9, the number changes to a great multitude that no one could count. This is reminiscent of God telling Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, you're going to be my people. And from you are going to come all of my people. And Abraham, look at the stars and count them if you can. And he can't, but that's going to be the numbers of my people. You can't count how many of my people there are going to be. Nobody can count how many. God's grace is abundant, for, uh, abundant enough for everyone and anyone who would come to Jesus. That's anyone. So then why 144,000? And then right after that, a great multitude that no one could count. That's a good question. I'm so glad you asked. Here's why. God is saying, on one hand, I know exactly how many there are going to be. He knows the hairs on our head. He certainly knows how many are going to be his people, right down to the very last one. He knows exactly. He knows exactly how many and who his people are. On the other hand, those who do find salvation in Jesus are so many that no one other than God can figure that number. We, we, we don't really know. And let's go further yet. I love this language too. It's from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. God's grace has no boundaries and there are no favorites. And they are clothed in white with palm branches in their hands. Again, they're clothed in white. They're covered with Jesus, the righteous, perfect lamb who went to the cross to save them from their sin. And the palm branches symbolize their victory in Jesus over Satan. That's why we have Palm Sunday. In verses 13 through 17, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love the irony here that the white robes all Christ followers will wear were made white by the blood of Jesus. Tremendous irony. Those in the white robes are coming out of the great tribulation. So the question is, is that the tribulation we live, as, live in as Christians on a day-to-day basis because of the sin and darkness of this world? Or is it more specifically the great tribulation of the first six seals? And the answer is yes, it's both. But it's especially pointing towards the specific tribulation that will come just before Jesus ushers in the new Jerusalem. So what do we learn from that? And and I think it's pretty simple, actually. Have you ever heard the saying, it gets worse before it gets better? It's going to get worse before it gets better. 
This reminds me of, again, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, one of his favorite sayings, no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. That is simultaneously the most discouraging and encouraging sentence in the history of the human language. The world tells us, though, the world tells us it's going to be all cupcakes and muffins and sunshine and rainbows if we follow them, and that is actually a lie. That's Babylon. God tells us the truth. He says, because of sin, the world is a tough place. And just when you think you've got it in the wheelhouse, watch out. But the hope we have is in the promise of the resurrected Jesus who will come again and make things right. Verses 16 and 17 describe that goodness that those in Christ will enjoy forever and ever. I want to dwell on this. Think about this. This This is really where all of us would like to end up. Okay, no more hunger. Okay, it's not just that you just finished a meal. No more hunger refers to the fact that every desire that you have ever had will be fulfilled, and not only fulfilled, but you'll be able to say, I'm satisfied. How many times have you fulfilled an earthly desire, and after you fulfilled it, you're like, well, that was good, but it's not quite enough. It's not quite there. We'll also never thirst again. You know, that's, that's a wonderful thing to think about, that we're not going to thirst, we're not going to be rooting around looking for that, uh, that perfect thing to satisfy our thirst, to quench our thirst. But really, the one I love the most, because I'm a native of Phoenix and I've lived here um, 59, 58 of my 64 years, I'm a native here. This is so good for people from Phoenix, which, by the way, is a suburb of hell. The scorching... <laughs> The scorching sun and heat will no longer strike us. Can you imagine that? Could, could I just get just a teeny tiny little hallelujah from y'all? Is it, yeah. Just whisper. Yeah. Uh, Sandy Mason, who's one of the pastors in, in um, Redemption Central, he, he said, you know, the problem with preaching the gospel in Phoenix is no one's afraid of hell. <laughs> And finally, we will be guided to springs of living water, and every one of our tears will be wiped away. All of our trauma. And, and I know so many people who have suffered just immeasurable, wicked, awful trauma. I don't even know how they deal with it. I have empathy, but I have no interpathy. There's a difference. Empathy is just trying to imagine what it's like for them. Interpathy is when you've actually gone through what they've gone through. I don't have interpathy with that. And I try to have empathy. But I do know that there's a promise that all of that trauma is going to be healed in the New Jerusalem. That's a beautiful thing. And then verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Whoa. Seal 7 doesn't inspire a lot of activity at first. Instead, it, it just inspires silence. Now, why? It's because of awe and wonder, and amazement. Have you ever been so blown away by something that you, you can't even say something? You can't utter any sound? These judgments are going to be unpleasant for many, but the judgments will also bring justice and protection for many others. And the pure display of God's sovereignty, authority, and power will leave everyone speechless. But we, we have yet to understand what the, the seventh seal will unleash 
And that's what we're going to start looking at next week. And before I get there, I have something to close with, but just understand, next week, that seventh seal brings about the seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet brings about the seven bowls. And, and people have, many people have described these, these uh, rounds of, of seven judgments of little nesting boxes. You ever open, you know, frustrating those are, you get to the last one, this is it, and then, oh, you're going to start all over again. And we're going to be looking at that in the weeks to come. But before we end, a little inside baseball. When we preach, no matter the text, we bring out the gospel at Redemption Church, the good news of Jesus. We're gospel-centered and we're outward-focused. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And if it's a biblical text, it has a gospel component. Everything points to Jesus. Now, sometimes the gospel thread in a biblical text is a little bit more difficult to unpack than in others, and therefore we have to work a little bit harder what do we do with these two chapters? <laughs> okay, I would describe these two chapters as handing you a 40-ounce bat and somebody's going to loft to you a five-foot beach ball and you have to try to hit the beach ball. You're not going to miss. This is just too easy. There is only one who is worthy to open the scrolls and that is Jesus, the Lamb. And it is the Lamb who by the power and finality of the cross and the resurrection, He clothes us in white robes. His blood has made our garments white. It is the Lamb's finished work on the cross that protects us from the judgments that assail everyone and everything else that has rebelled against God, whether that rebellion is passive or active. And it is the Lamb who takes us to a place where we have no more pain, no more tears, no more hunger or thirst, no more scorching heat or sun, but we do have living water. And the message in these verses could not be clearer. You and I desperately need Jesus. And understand, if He is worthy to open these seals, He is also worthy to judge. If you've already come to Jesus, rejoice and celebrate. And we're going to do that right now when we take communion. Rejoice and celebrate that you have this Savior. And if you have yet to do that, there's no better time than to do it right now because, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But the only way it actually gets better is to be in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word and its truth. And, and we know that it is not by our power or our intelligence that we can save ourselves, but it is simply by the grace that you give to us and then after you give us that grace, you give us your wisdom and your insight and the opportunity to know you better and better every single day. And, and you give us the hope that is only found in you and you, and, you, and you give us this ability to live with boldness and courage. And so we thank you for that. And so God, as we, as we come to this time in our service, we're going to sing a couple of songs. We're going to take communion together. I just pray that you would encourage us in all of that. Let us celebrate now who Jesus is, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.